All right, well, good morning. Well, it's good to be back with you guys uh, here uh, this morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. And um, you might know that uh, myself, along with uh, 22 others, so 23 of us total, who went uh, to Israel. And uh, it was a life-changing, uh, incredible, uh, amazing, wonderful, how many different things can I say, um, experience. And, uh, and so I know many of you guys are asking, you know, hey, when can we hear about that? You know, we want... I know that you want to share kind of vicariously in that. Our plan, our hope is that we get to go kind of every two years and so take some more people. Uh, but in the meantime, we know you want to hear. We want to share with you. Uh, but we also know that we need to jump back into life and kind of figure out what is it that God is really imprinting on our hearts. Uh, and so we want to give you kind of that full fullness uh, of that return, uh, not just, you know, kind of the hype of the trip. And so uh, just know that we're working on a day and a time to be able to share that with you uh, so that we can kind of celebrate that uh, together. So, hey, another question announcement. Um, you may remember that a year ago or so, uh, we had some issues with our roof, okay? You remember this. <laughs> wind caused some problems, wind caused some more problems, and uh, we've been working with the insurance company since then, and I am just happy uh, to inform you that all of the insurance stuff is coming in, and all of that is being taken care of, and so thank you for praying. Yep, you can pray. That's great. Yeah. It's a, it's a really big number, and so I know that uh, just for us, it's just a weight off of our shoulders as we're going to get to see all that kind of change and it kind of move back to a sense of normalcy. So construction actually starts on the roof this next week of a whole new roof, which is going to be great, and so that's going to be awesome. So thanks for uh, continuing to pray um, for that. So uh, how many of you guys have seen, uh, I'm guessing probably not a ton of you, but how many of you guys have seen the movie Blank Check? Blank Check. <laughs> You're like, what is that? Here it is, okay? Uh, anybody knows, that's my 90s kids, you know, that's, that's when I grew up. This is, I think, when I was in seventh grade. Um, it's a Disney movie, it's a, it's a story, and you're like, what is that? I'm going to give you, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know, if you want to go back and watch it, just plug your ears for a second, but 1994, it's pretty old, so I'm guessing you won't. Um, so, but anyways, blank check, right? So it's a story about a kid who's got a bike and he's in the parking lot. Some guy backs out, dings his bike, and in his haste, the guy um, hastily writes a check and hands it to, to this kid, not realizing that it's a blank check. <laughs> yeah, it's like somebody said, that's trouble. Yeah. So like if you're a kid, like you begin to dream, like what is it that you would want? Like what would you spend? So like he goes home and he's like, man, what if I had $100? If I had $100, I could buy a new bike. That's pretty crazy. That's like a new bike, a $100 bike? Wait, actually, maybe that's too small. What if I had $1,000? No, a million. And so he writes down a million dollars, and, you know, because it's a movie, that just happens to be the amount of money that this guy who gave it to him is working in on the side in this bad guy deal. And so then he's going to lose all of his million dollars, right? And so this kid, he writes it, he cashes the check, and, and so he goes and he buys a mansion, um, yeah, yeah, right? Buys a mansion, um, then he buys a pool with this massive slide, uh, puts a go-kart uh, like track in his backyard, he's got a massive trampoline uh, and all this stuff, and so you begin to look at this and you're like, man, this is so cool, like if I was a kid, what would I do with this? You know, as the story unfolds, you know, they, people begin to begin to be suspicious because he's a kid, he's like, so he makes up an alias for a fake adult who's always working named Mr. Macintosh, because that was the computer that was coming out at the time, you know? Um, <laughs> And so that's the, that's the movie, you know? And so as you think about this, you know, what if, like, like for you and I as an adult or if you're a kid, you go, maybe that's, that's really easy for you to process and go, how would I spend a blank check or if somebody gave me a million dollars or how much would I want and, and what would I buy with it? You know, it's different for kids and adults. As an adult, you might say, I'm going to pay off my mortgage, 
right? Uh, I'm going to pay off my car. Pay, maybe it's my student loans. Um, maybe it's setting up for retirement. Uh, maybe it's setting your kids up for their future. Maybe it's giving to the church, which we're going to talk about next week. And so I want to invite you to come back uh, for that. Um, you know, and so there's all these different things. But it, like our adult versions of spending money are way, way less cool. But they're very practical, right? Um, and so but when you begin to think about this, right, it's so interesting because even though it's, it's fun to think about, maybe it's hard for us as adults to think about us because really at, at the end of every day, we're like, hey, this doesn't happen. Like, this is, like no one's going to hand me a blank check or give me a million dollars or or something like that. And so we just kind of like move past, right? And because and most of us, we, we wrestle with this, this, this truth of life is that, that money isn't unlimited. Money is very, <laughs> very limited, right? Um, and what makes money so tricky is that when really what money is, is that, that you want to spend money on the things that you value, right? And so when two people, right, have competing values, right, that creates a conflict because we don't have unlimited money. If we had unlimited money, we could just buy everything that we want, right? Like, like yeah, I think about, you know, in our marriage, in our household, like I enjoy, like I'm a foodie, so I, like I love going out to eat. We don't do it a ton, but I, I enjoy that. I just, and I don't mind spending money on that sometimes, but my wife hates that. But my wife loves plants, which is why we have 8 million. <laughs> so if you, we're, by the way, we're having a sale. If you would like one, you don't even need to buy one. You come, you get one, we give you five, okay? Um, it's a great deal. I'm kidding. I give, I give her a hard time. I actually really, really enjoy the plants. But the reality is, is that we have these competing values in our life. And this is what makes money so tricky because we have a limited amount of money and we want to know how do we spend it, right? And what we're going to find today as we look at, as we look at a parable is we're going to find that um, the gospel, right, kind of determines how we spend our money. Like how we spend our money should be a reflection of the gospel. And so Jesus um, is going to tell this parable, which by the way, we're in this series, right, called What If? It's about our time our talents, and our treasures, right? So that's where we're landing uh, today. And we're going to be in this parable in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 out of 37, and so you can follow along. Um, but for those of you who don't maybe know, some of you may be less familiar with what a parable actually is, let me just tell you. Uh, a parable is, is this, this short fictional story uh, that Jesus uses um, to stir in people's hearts, okay? So it's not, it's not a self-help story. It's not how do I become a better human being. It's not about how do I become a better whatever. It's not this, this something about these grand way to tell about morals or ethics. It's really, it's really unique. And how Jesus, is, how Jesus uses his parables is so unique from how other rabbis in his culture used it because what he's doing is he's putting a stamp uh, and he's identifying the brokenness in humanity, right? And then he's identifying how he is going to step into that brokenness. And so really parables are not about you and me. They're really about Jesus and the kingdom that he's building, right? But what's so interesting about these parables is that like when Jesus, who is the greatest teacher of all time, right? When Jesus tells a story and he's about to teach something in a parable, you would think that his people come away feeling more knowledgeable. Guess what? Not the case with Jesus, right? Jesus oftentimes by use of parables left his readers and his listeners more confused, 
Right, Which is why this is tricky, because the kingdom that he's describing is this upside-down kingdom. And so as he's telling these stories, as he's creating these fictional stories, he's creating a moment of crisis for the, le- for the listeners and for the readers, right? And it's forcing us to see the kingdom through his eyes, which is so radically different and opposite to the way that you and I as human beings often perceive and interact in the world. It's so radically different, but in so doing, what Jesus does is that he forces us to really engage with the truth and to really listen and to respond with our hearts. And so this morning, as we look at this parable, know that that's what he's doing. And I want to tell you up front that that money is not the issue. It's not the main issue in this text. Money really never is the issue. The main issue is about loving God and loving others. Okay, so that's where we're going to start and really talk through that in this parable, but it does teach us a little bit about money, and what I hope that we'll find is that how we think about the gospel will transform how we think about how we spend our money, because, our God, because how we spend our money can be a reflection of the gospel in all of its extravagance, in all of its generosity. So here we go, uh, chapter, chapter 10, verse 25. We're going to start with this idea of the, the theoretical, and then we're going to move to the practical, uh, and then to the theological, and you'll see how that all fits kind of at the end. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you, you listen to this, you hear this, you know, kind of like being spoken, you can begin to picture in your mind's eye the way that this circumstance or this situation is kind of unfolding, right? So you've got a lawyer. Uh, the lawyer is really this expert in the law. He's incredibly knowledgeable. He knows the law, the first five books of the Bible in and out, whether he does that professionally or on the side. Uh, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but he's, he's an expert in the law. And so what does he do? He stands up, right? And in so doing, he expresses his motive, which is to test Jesus. Now, we read this, and we automatically, or maybe you don't, but automatically, oftentimes, we'll think, the, think ill of this man, like his intention was to really, like, to test Jesus in a bad way. Well, the reality is that in Jesus' time and in his culture, this was actually very common, right? because two people who knew the, knew the, uh, the Torah or um, the, the law would engage in dialogue. And so really what we're beginning to see here, uh, at least as it seems, is the beginning of maybe what might be called like a, like a rabbinic contest, like a rabbinical contest. It's like these two guys, these two teachers who know the law really well, and he's going to stand up, and he wants to know, he wants to learn from Jesus or understand what Jesus' perception is is about this issue. And the question that he asks is what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's interesting because he uses that personal pronoun, I, right? Like, it's me, it's I, and yet the question itself comes across as very theoretical, And so maybe there's some personal interest here, but it seems more like he's just standing up and he's presenting a situation. So in theory, what would I need to do to inherit eternal life, right? Now, as you think about this, as you think about, like, if you were to put yourself in Jesus' shoes, how would you respond? Maybe the way to best ask that question is a different way, just to say, if anybody ever asks you a question, how do you respond? You give them an answer, right? And yet that's not Jesus' pattern. Guys, do you know this? Do you know how many questions that were asked of Jesus in the New Testament? 187. 
100, and probably countless more in real life, right? 187 times he's asked a question. Do you know how many times he directly answers a question? Three. Three times. In fact, Jesus is oftentimes, his response is to actually ask more questions. And so Jesus is actually recorded as asking more than 300 questions himself. You see, Jesus' goal is not to give answers. That's our tendency, because we want to work in that knowledge realm. And Jesus is focusing, with these parables especially, is focused on the heart and engaging people and trying to get to this deeper reality to help them understand about the kingdom that Jesus is building. And there's an invitation into that kingdom as it goes, right? So this guy, what he wants to know, this lawyer, this expert in the law, his question is really geared around eternal life, which is very different than the eternal life that we talk about later on in the New Testament. In the Jewish sense, what this is, is that when the end times comes, it's like, I want to know what do I need to do just to make sure that I have this, this part of this peace uh, in all of my righteousness and the blessings because of my righteousness. That's what he's asking. Which is important to know because in his question, guys, I don't think that there's a hint of sin. I don't think he's talking at all. Like when we talk about eternal life, we talk about the gospel, like what do we go to first? We go to our brokenness. He doesn't go there. He's viewing this purely as a works in its orientation, which is important because Jesus is then going to respond in kind. He's going to respond to that question alone about works. But this is how he does it. Again, he asks questions, right? So he, he reverses this. So the guy asks a question and Jesus replies. He says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Okay. Now, do you realize how big of a question this is? It's huge. Do you know why? Because the law is massive. How many of you guys know what a pomegranate is? Okay, probably most of us know what a pomegranate is. Every single, if you were to go home, like you, this could be your, like, I'm going to test this out uh, and try this. Go home, buy one, and if you were to cut it down the middle, and if you were to hand account every single seed in that pomegranate, do you know how many you would find? 613. And it's the exact same in every single one. It's fascinating, God's design. How many commandments are there in the law? 613. And so when Jesus says, hey, what's written in the law? And how do you read it? <laughs> That's 613 things. Jesus, how in the world do you sum up or do you talk about 613 different things? And this is brilliant, though, by Jesus' part, because what Jesus is doing is that in the Jewish tradition, right, they have the oral tradition and then they have the law, right? And it was equated. And so Jesus is like, hey, don't tell me about what this tradition says over here. I want to know this. What does the Bible say? That's what I want to know. Which is, which is, I think, really important in today's world, in the world that we live in. Because if we were to come over here, you know, and kind of put this word Bible, and we put this kind of at the center, right? Um, if somebody were to come to you, like, you know, like, I don't know, maybe it's a coworker, and they ask you out of left field, you know, they want to know uh, about eternal life. And you're like, that's a great question. Maybe somebody has asked you that. You go, we go, okay, what does the Bible say? Like, we, where do we go? What's our authority? The Bible, right? What about, uh, uh, this is a related question, because um, this is a big thing in today's world, um, is in regards to eternal life or not, it's the idea of annihilationism. 
Annihilationalism is this idea that uh, God, in all of his love, there's no way a loving God would send somebody to hell. And so he just causes people to cease to exist. Okay. What does the Bible say? Right? Um, what about uh, over here? Um, what about uh, gender uh, and sexuality? What does, what does the Bible say? Right? And we could keep going all over the place, right, with all these different things, right? And we, it's just so important for us to keep coming back to this truth, right? And Jesus models this. He says, what does the Bible say? And how do you read it? What's your interpretation? Right? Because that's so important in today's world. And so here, though, you come back to the story. Okay, Jesus asked this question, what does the Bible say? What is what is in here? What is written? And how do you read it? And this is how the man replies. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, where does this come from? The first one comes from Deuteronomy 6, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all of your soul and with all of your might. The second one from Leviticus, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Later on in Matthew 22, which is really kind of around the year three of Jesus' ministry, he puts those two things together and he says, this is the greatest commandment and the second is like it right? So this is incredible. This is remarkably astute that this guy, this lawyer, this expert in the law would put these two things together. The first one makes more sense, the Deuteronomy 6, because it's part of the Shema. The Shema is something that you would recite twice a day as a good Jew, right? As a good follower, a good orthodox righteous person in that time, like you would recite it twice a day. And it comes from that. It's like, you shall love the Lord your God, right? And here's how they remember, is that they say, I don't know if you remember this, they say they would bind it or put in these little boxes and put them on your foreheads, or you could bind it on your forearm. Or in, in, even in today, today's world, if you go to Israel, uh, on every single doorframe, when you walk into a hotel, every single doorframe into your room, there's this little tiny like kind of ornate scroll looking thing. And inside of that is the Shema. And the idea is, is that everywhere you go, what's the one thing that you need to remember? I am supposed to love God with all of my heart, with all of my strength, and with all of my soul, right? So every, every person would have known that. That's incredibly, right? That's probably pretty easy. But the Leviticus one, how in the world he gets that? Like that's in the middle. I mean, Leviticus is super important for understanding scripture, but it is in the middle of one of the most dense, long, boring, hard books. And he's like, hey, I know it. I got it. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. It's incredibly and remarkably astute. And so what he does here is that, is that this lawyer is actually affirming that love is so much more than an emotion, right? Love is actually a devotion. It's a commitment. It's an obedience, right? That's what love is. And because it starts with this love for God, but because it represents in, in, in God's love, is that a God love actually cares for who? Human beings cares for other people, right? And so really, this is the best answer that this lawyer, that this expert in law could have ever given. And Jesus has no rebuttal. And he says this. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Right? Do this and you will live. Here's what's so interesting, I think, is that when you look at that, right? Um, well, how does this question start? It starts, what if I need to do to inherit eternal life? Future tense. Do this and you will live. What? <laughs> Sounds like right now. <laughs> Do you see how Jesus is reversing this? He's like, the guy is so concerned about this, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. How does this look now? 
do this. Do this and you will live. And this emphasis that he has is really on doing. And so as we come over here, right, what Jesus is doing, and this is brilliant, is that Jesus is taking this guy who's living kind of in the theoretical world, like what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to bring him into the practical. And he's going to force him to think about um, what does this really look like? What does this really look like in, in real life? And it actually ends up working very much so, so much so that this young man starts to question, um, question, um, you know, this, I guess, whether or, not he's, whether or not he's doing well enough. So look at this. Look in verse, um, in this next verse 29. It says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, like this whole thing, like it's like this range starts to focus, right? Like this, have, have I done this well enough, right? So if I come back over here, right, and you think about loving God and loving others, right? And so, okay, we all know that there's probably a level of perfection in its way up here, um, but we can probably all agree in our humanity that only Jesus can do that, right? Then there's these people down here who really don't love God at all. Right? And they don't love other people. In fact, they hate people. Right? And so you're like, okay, so there's those people. But for the rest of us, we go, but we're somewhere in between, aren't we? And where do I land? And so this is this, what's so brilliant about Jesus is that by saying, he's saying, do this and you will live, he's forcing this, this man, this lawyer, to, to figure out what that scale is and where do I fit. How would you answer this? You know, like, is it, is it 50%? Like, if this is the middle, like, do I just need to be just better than that? That's the question, you know? Because we have to wrestle with the scale. Like, am I actually good enough? At what point have I loved God and loved others enough that I can actually inherit eternal life? And so when he asks this question, he says to vindicate himself or to justify himself, he's now wrestling with this question. Okay, like, yeah, okay, that's a good question. How, where, where am I at on this scale? You know, in, in Israel, this is something that was fascinating as we went over this year, um, on the, the south side of the Mount of Olives, which is across from the city of Jerusalem, the south side of the Mount of Olives is covered with tombs. And it's because these people want to be buried in the shadow or in the eyesight of the temple, right? Um, but here's what's so fascinating is that on some of those tombs there are these big rocks or piles of rocks on top of the tomb. And so somebody from our group asked our um, tour uh, guide, Joseph, they said, hey, why is it that some people put stones on top of these? And he said, that's a great question. He said, the superstition is, is that a massive wind will blow through the mountain and carry their soul away. Isn't that fascinating? It's interesting. So, so here, if you were to trace it backwards, so this, this man or woman, whoever it is that's buried in this tomb, lived life with this question, right? Am I good enough? Which, by the way, this is a question that you and I ask all the time, isn't it? Like, I don't know, like I was walking, like I walked into Eden's bedroom the other day and I just looked at Eden and I was like, oh man, God, thank you so much. She is so beautiful. She is so great. Am I a good enough dad? Like it came out of nowhere, Right? And am I a good enough husband? Am I a good enough friend? Right? And, and all of a sudden it can start to spiral. And yet for, if that's true for us, if that's true for us who know Jesus, how much, more, how much more true is that for people in the world? Like your coworker, your neighbor, you may not see it on their face, but at the end of the, every day, they might be just saying, gosh, like I don't know how to scale this, but am I really good enough? Am I good enough? Right? That's a fascinating thing to think about 
as we, as we process the story, right? Which really we know is the antithesis of the gospel because it's not by works, it's by grace through faith, right? But if you think about it, so you've got this guy in a tomb and so his entire life, he's lived this going, gosh, am I good enough? And all of a sudden death comes and he's in this tomb and now all of that worry has been transplaced or transplanted to his family who are so worried for him that what do they do? They put rocks on his tomb because they don't want his soul to fly away, Right? It's, it's, it's fascinating, and it's super interesting, and it makes us a little more sympathetic to this character as to what it would be like to constantly live life thinking, gosh, like, am I actually good enough? And he asks this question then, again, to justify himself, who then is my neighbor? Like, who is it actually? I want to know so that I can know if I'm good enough. Have I done this well enough? And what Jesus does is that he takes us, uh, in this parable, he takes us to a wilderness road, okay? And the wilderness road is, is a place that he would have been familiar with because you remember Jesus was baptized and then he went into the wilderness, right, to be tempted by the devil, right? It's the same type of place, but he takes us to a road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's a 21-mile road. It's common because it's traveled between the two cities. Um, the Jerusalem part starts at about 2,600 feet above sea level, and it ends at 865 feet below sea level. It's quite the journey, right? And you go and you trek all the way down and Jesus takes us to this place because he knows that this is a brutal, brutal road. And this is a dry, arid wilderness where there's really not a lot of life and this is where the bandits hang out. This is where the people, they hang out in their caves and this unsuspecting passerbys can get mugged. And this is the story. This is how he relays. This is how Jesus answers the guy's question about who is my neighbor. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I know it's a fictional story, but these are meant to paint a picture. So just stop and think. This is not something that we're used to. We don't see this very often, if ever. So what are you picturing? What does he look like? What does the road look like? And just process. Because that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's painting a picture for us. This is a desperate, desperate scenario. A guy has been beaten. He's half dead. He's in the middle of the desert with no one to help. It's very dire. It's a very dire situation, right? But then by chance, here's what he says. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, interestingly, we don't, like, we're not given anything about his motives. We don't know if he's going from Jericho to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Jericho, which would make a difference. Because if you're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, he's probably, as a priest, going to perform his duties. So if he were to touch someone, he would become unclean, and as soon as he does that, then he has to get clean before he can ever perform his duties in the temple. But if he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and if he's just going home by himself, then it doesn't really matter. But here's the point. Jesus doesn't tell us any of that. He doesn't give us any of the motives. He doesn't tell us where they're going. All he's telling you is that there's a man in need, and he wasn't helped. Right? And the next person, 
It says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levite is the assistant to the priest, and so he knows everything that the law requires. He knows all those things. And what's interesting is that when Jesus references these two, first two people, he uses a priest and he uses a Levite. In so doing, in both people in the rejection of this man who has been beaten and left for dead, by referencing both of these people, Jesus has now just affirmed that there's something broken in the temple system. Because the two people who know what they ought to do and don't do it, that's what's wrong, right? It's super, super wrong. In fact, I wanted to just show you a picture just to help this make a little bit more sense. Um, you're like, that looks more like just a cliff. Yeah, that's, that's the road. That's the Wadi Kelt Road. This is the wilderness road from Jericho uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, we started not 21 miles, but we started kind of at a middle point there and, and started walking down. You can see to the left, it's basically straight up, and to the right, it's straight down. I want you just to look at that for a second and just ponder, how wide do you think that road is? Four feet. About, a, about enough for a person to lay across, right? You see, when Jesus says that they went by the other side, I think that there's some, there's some play on words there, isn't there? Why? Because there is no other side. Right? The other side is Jesus' way of saying that they would have had to step over the man. Here's another picture. You see uh, kind of the, the little bit more of that change in elevation to the left again up and to the right is straight down and so all of a sudden you begin to picture this road this is the road that jesus is talking about it's the exact road that jesus is referencing in this story and so both so far a priest and a levite have passed by but here's where the story changes jesus introduces a new character right and he says but this is the contrast word but a samaritan all of a sudden like you have to hit pause how many of you guys have seen um the movie princess bride Classic. A lot of movie references today. I don't know why. Princess Bride. Princess Bride there is, is a whole movie about a book that a grandfather is reading to his grandson, and then as he reads, then the movie takes place. Okay? Remember this? Right? And at the very beginning of the book, or at the very beginning of the story, this movie, the grandfather starts reading, and there's these two main people, a man and a woman, and they're, they're living on a farm, and it looks like they're happily ever after, and they embrace for a hug and a kiss, and all of a sudden, the kid goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Grandpa, tell me this isn't going to be one of those kissing books, is it? And it's like this idea, like the, the whole movie shuts down to ask this question, and it like pauses and stops because like you're like, oh, that's not the way it's supposed to go, right, in your mind. And as soon as Jesus would have mentioned the word Samaritan, I imagine the same type of thing could have happened. Because as soon as a Samaritan is mentioned, guess what? He is entirely the wrong person. He's the wrong character ethnically, religiously, culturally, socially, everything. He's the wrong person for this story. He's the wrong person. And yet what Jesus is going to do is that he's going to use what's wrong with the Jewish system to talk about what's right in Jesus' kingdom. And it's really, really neat because here's how this unfolds, right? The Samaritan man, it says, as he journeyed, he came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion, and here's how this kind of this whole thing unfolds. And just see, to see the extravagance of this, right? First it says that he went to him. Like we keep in mind the backdrop is the priest and the Levite. They just go right past, right? But it says he went to them. And then what does he do? He binds up his wounds 
And then what does he do? He pours on oil and wine. So the wine would have disinfected, the oil would have soothed. And you think about this, again, you go like, okay, so like, where is he getting all of these things? Like in the moment, it's not like he just looks to the right and there in the rocks is like a wilderness marketplace. Oh, how convenient is that? I'll take some wine, some oil, and some bandages. No, like what, everything that he has to give this person is from his own, his own stuff or off of his own body, right? And he starts to, like, he would have to take off his cloak and, and rip that up and to, and to bind the wounds, and, and yet then the story continues, right? It says, then he set him on his own mule and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Like, the story just continues to go. And you're like, man, he gets to stop there in verse 35. It says, and the next day he took out two denarii. And then what does he do? He gives them to the innkeeper and he says, take care of them. Oh, and by the way, whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. You know, whenever I think about this word extravagant or generosity, like extravagance, this idea of over the top, above and beyond, right, excessive amount. And, And Jesus could have stopped his parable the moment he said the Samaritan had compassion on him because the whole room would have been silent because it's the wrong character. But Jesus goes the extra mile to paint this picture that this man, this Samaritan man who is culturally, ethnically, socially, and religiously wrong, then goes to this, 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 and this length to love and to care for the man who was broken, right? And all of a sudden you get this picture of how, you know, you know, the man uses his time, his talents, and his treasures. He uses all of those things for the sake of building the kingdom. And it's, he's spending, what he's spending is because he values being a part of and building the kingdom that Jesus is about, Right? Which, by the way, when Jesus does this, Jesus has already answered the question, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? It's the person right next to you, wherever you are, right now. The person you're sitting by, your family, the person behind you. When you go to Dairy Queen to get your Dale Blizzard, you know, or whatever it is, wherever you go, your neighbor is who you're next to right now, in that moment, right? And so guys, here's the deal. Like I know that the point of this story is not to talk about money, but it does teach us about money. So let's just pause and just think for a second because I think that this is, this is true for us as people, is that you and I tend to give money to the things that we do know, not the things that we don't know. Like we want to know everything about it. Because we want a level of control. Because when we look at that man on the ground, we might be tempted to say, is he even a good guy? Maybe he's a bad guy. You know what? Maybe he deserved it. Maybe this beating is what God's going to use to bring him to Jesus. What? That's challenging, right? And maybe sometimes we might go, you know what? If I help this person, there's no guarantee that they're going to turn their life around. They might just, whatever, might just go off and waste it. Yeah, that's possible, right? But it's not about what you don't know. It's about what you do. And what Jesus identifies is what, what the Samaritan knew was that here's a man who clearly, desperately needed help. I want to put up two verses, and I want you just to ask yourself in your heart, what's the connection between these two verses? The first one is that great commandment. 
you shall love the Lord with all of your what? Your heart. The second one, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's the connection? It's a hard, it's a hard question for us to ask ourselves because it forces us to re-examine. But here's what I love. This is where this whole story changes from the practical to the theological because what happens here, and this is so overlooked, and, and you'll miss the point of the story if you miss this part, but because at the very end of that, when he pulls out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and he gives them to the innkeeper and says, here, you need to take care of him, but guess what? I'm going to leave, but here's the key. I'm going to come back, and here's the deal. Whatever you spend, however much it is, I will cover it. It's a blank check. It's a blank check on behalf of the man in need. And see what Jesus is doing in this moment, right? Like, by the way, like we know this is a fictional story, right? And so Jesus, like you can, you can paint a picture with a person with unlimited money and you can say whatever you want in a fictional story, can't you, right? And so don't take this literally and then go back out and just like start writing unblank checks to everybody. Like if anybody uses checks, I don't know, you know? Like don't just start doing that. Right? But there is this reality. There is this reality, and perhaps it's, it's too simplistic at times, but there is this reality that someone once said, if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you what you love. Because what you spend your money on shows where your heart is. Right? And it's a hard thing. And so what we're talking about here is this idea that how we spend our money can actually be a reflection of the gospel. And look at these last, as we get to these last verses in 36 and 37, just remember though, keep in your mind that at the beginning of this time when, when um, this, this lawyer comes to test Jesus and he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, right? There's no sin that's a part of that scenario. But guess what? Is sin a part of the conversation now? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus, through his questions, has revealed that this man has prejudice against another man, and therefore sin is now a part of the conversation. And so now all of a sudden, Jesus can steer this thing straight into the gospel. And so what he says, in these, these lines he says, is he looks at the guy and he says, so of these three, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man says, the one who showed him mercy. Guys, I just want to point this out. Um, he does not use the word Samaritan. He still can't even bring himself to say it. And Jesus' response is, you go and do likewise. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? You see what Jesus is doing is he's using this idea of the blank check. He's using this idea of money to talk about the gospel because he can compare the money and the extravagance of this man's care, especially highlighted in the blank check at the end, right? To talk about compassion and forgiveness and, and the beauty of the gospel, right? And it's this beautiful, wonderful invitation that Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting the man even into, into the gospel. And so if we come back over here, right? So what Jesus has, 
uh, kind of officially done throughout this whole conversation is he took a man who, in theory, was concerned about the Bible and some of those things. Jesus was able to move him to a place of practicalness where he says, okay, how does this actually look like? What does it look like in real life? And now he's actually brought it full circle all the way back to the very same commandment. You shall love God and love others. But now he's put a totally different spin on it because it's not theoretical, it's gospel love right? Because really what we're talking about here is God. And so all of a sudden, now what we see is that God, look at how much he loves us. Like this is who he is. Theology, by the way, is the study of God. So this is who God is. This is how much he loves us. How do we respond? We love him in return, which a part of that, the second is like it. We love other people, don't we? And so in so doing, this whole thing, we're able to pull all of this stuff, this entire story, all the way back to the gospel. It's this beautiful moment where we begin to reprioritize and understand the generosity and the extravagance of the love in which we've received and how that determines and dictates actually how we live our lives, which includes how we spend our money. So I want to ask you this, this last question kind of as we, as we wrap up, as we think about the gospel, right? We come back to that first question which we asked earlier, what does the Bible say? Right? It's always such a fundamentally important question to come back to in our world, right? Like we should be well-versed in this. Study, read, listen, whatever you need to do, learn. Be learners of scripture, right? So that we, when these questions are asked, like we can respond and we can talk. And again, it's not always about just giving answers, right? But we can know what the Bible says, and the last one is this. How do you spend your time, your talents, and your treasures? And here's my question. Like, what if in your life and in my life, what if our finances, specifically that treasure piece, what if in our finances, our finances began to reflect the generosity and the extravagance of the gospel? What does that look like? Because all of a sudden, we can reprioritize this, right? This whole theological thing becomes a determiner. If we start with who God is and what he's done for us, now what does that do? That informs my theoretical. Because now what I can do is I can begin to dream what-if dreams. God, I love you and I love others. What if you could use me and my money to help and impact other people? Which then gets lived out in real life. It's a simple question, like I said, but it's hard it's hard to answer, and it takes a lot of self-examination, but there's beauty in this idea of knowing that how we spend our money can be a reflection of the generosity of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we, as we wrap up this morning, and as we're going to move into a time of communion and, and hear a special music song and then end with a worship Lord, I pray that this morning that, uh, that you would be working in our hearts, that you would remind us that there is a blank check that was extended to us. And it's not a check that says, go on and keep sinning for the rest of your life and do whatever you want. In fact, it's the opposite, right? We don't keep sinning so that grace may abound, but we do know and we believe that as far and as deep as our sin runs, your grace runs deeper still and that there is a blank check in some sense that's been offered to us. And so would you remind us this morning of the depth and the greatness and the beauty of your love? Would you remind us who you are and would you remind us what, we, what you've called us to do? And so Lord, as we think and reflect on this story, 
about this, this good Samaritan. Lord, I pray that you would remove in us, in any of us, any prejudice, any ethnic, any cultural, any social, any religious prejudice, that you'd remove that and that we would get to become a neighbor to whoever we are near. Lord, thank you so much. We love you. Amen.